Uh, in Luke's account, Jericho is the last stop on Jesus' travelogue, his journey that he's been making before he gets to the city of Jerusalem. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal entry into the city. And then the following is Resurrection Sunday. Uh, in between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we have what is referred to as Passion Week. And passion comes from the Latin word meaning to suffer. So that's when Jesus is going to be tortured and then when he will be killed. In the first verses of our text for today in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is going to announce for the third time his coming death in just a matter of weeks. He's going to talk about that. And then the last verse of the text we're going to read represents ultimately what got him killed. This last statement is his mission statement. It's the statement that has been motivating him during his entire journey into people's lives. And I would venture to say it's the same motivation even for today as Jesus carries out his work. That last verse, Luke chapter 19 verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that what was lost. Now, does that sound like the kind of verse that could get you killed? I, I mean, when, when I think about that verse, I, I think back to some of the texts that we've seen, how Jesus is the good shepherd, and he finds that little lost lamb, and that nice and cuddly lamb, and pick, picks him up in the arms, and, and, I, and I see that. But that's not exactly the full story. What God Jesus killed was not that he saved nice, kind, good people. What got him killed was that he saved anyone who was lost. Even the people that they didn't think deserved to be saved. And, and, and we're going to see that tension in today's text. Jesus is going to save heal a person who deserved, at least in human estimation, deserved to be saved and deserved to be healed. In Greek it's the same word, sozo, heal or save. But, but he's also going to save someone who most decidedly did not deserve to be saved. And yet, Jesus saves them both. The first man was one of the oppressed. second man was one of the oppressors. And what we see is that Jesus came to be the Messiah for everyone who was lost. That was the only prerequisite to being saved by Jesus, was being lost. Doesn't matter what label society gives you. Doesn't matter ethnicity. Doesn't matter gender. Doesn't matter what your socioeconomic standing is. The only thing that matters is if you think and recognize you're lost, Jesus is there to save you. So let's read the text. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31, and we'll just read straight through uh, the story of the healing of the blind man and also the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Verse 31, chapter 18 of Luke. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus said, Listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans, and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit on. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. But they didn't understand any of this. 
The significance of his words was hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the noise of a crowd going past, he asked what was happening. They told him Jesus the Nazarene was going by. So he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, the people in front yelled at him, but he only shouted louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped in order that the man be brought to him. As the man came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, All right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see and he followed Jesus praising God. And all who saw it praised God too. 19 verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a good look at Jesus but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus, called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, you come down. Quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He is gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated anyone on their taxes, I, I will give them back four times as much. My addition, and with a smile, Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. In verse 10, Luke 19, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Word of the Lord. As Jesus approaches Jericho, many of the people in the city would come out and meet this passing dignitary. His reputation had preceded him. People knew who he was. And they probably already had a big banquet prepared. They probably had a, a place for him to stay already lined up with the most influential person in the city of Jericho. Uh, but as they're going by, there's this blind man begging. Now, Luke doesn't tell us his name. But Mark does. And Mark tells us his name is Bartimaeus. Doesn't mean much to us would have meant a lot more to them because in Aramaic, bar means son. In Hebrew, ben means son. But in Aramaic, bar means son. And the rest of his name, Timaeus, means son of uncleanness or an unclean one. Now, what mom in a right mind or what dad would give their son that name? Well... The common thinking was, if you were born blind, yeah, you probably did something to deserve it. So this was payback. This was God getting you, and that was the name he was going to bear. And for the rest of his adult life, he would be known as the son of uncleanness. The son of the unclean one. Once he hears Jesus is walking down the road, he begins to shout. Actually, the Greek word is to shriek. If you can imagine this blood-curdling yell that 
goes right through you all the way down to, to your very core. He, he might have heard that Jesus had once preached that he came to give sight to the blind. And he's thinking, this is it. Now's my chance. If not now, when? So he keeps shrieking. The crowd says, shh, tries to shush him. You know, they probably had plans for Jesus. They got this dinner and they've got things to do. And Jesus doesn't have time to waste with this no good for nothing beggar, son of uncleanness. But Jesus stops, says, bring me the man. And then he asks kind of a strange question. What do you want? What do you want from me? It sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? But, but see, typically when people were begging, they would ask for money. Or they would ask for food. And so, who knows? Jesus didn't know what the man wanted. So he says, what do you want? Doesn't ask the man, it doesn't ask Jesus for money, food. He says, I want a life. I, I want the possibility to have a wife. And the possibility of a job. And I want to have the possibility to have children, someone who loves me. I want to be able to go to the synagogue because... Physically maimed individuals were not welcome at the synagogue. And Jesus says, I can do that. In fact, I'm happy to do so. He healed the man and saved him. Saved him from a dead-end life and gave him abundant life. Now, the text indicates that Jesus indica uh, had uh, decided to pass through Jericho. He wasn't going to stop. You can hear everybody saying, oh, no, 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 please, 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 please. Stay just a little bit longer. Stay with us. And he says, no, I'm moving on. And when he gets on the other side of Jericho, on the way to Jerusalem, says he comes upon some sycamore trees, sycamore figs. Now, why in the world would Luke tell us the kind of a tree it was? Well, two reasons. One, because it's its shape. Large trunk, low-hanging branches, easy to climb. But because of that very characteristic, the rabbis had decided that tree should never be planted inside the city limits. Because the neighbors argue, your branch is over my yard and I'm going to cut it. Well, you can't cut it. It's not your tree. The trunk is in my yard. We in Miami know that situation very well, don't we? Unless they're, you know, fruit on that tree, then it's like, yeah, bring it on, bring it on, you yeah. <laughs> know. And so we know that he was outside the city on the way out. And then Luke tells us about Zacchaeus. Tax collectors were suspect because they were Jews who worked for the Roman government. Not only were they thieves for the most part, but they were also enemy collaborators. And if being a tax collector in and of itself wasn't bad enough, text tells us he was a chief tax collector. So that means not only did he rob the people that he was collecting taxes from, he took a cut from every single taxpayer. And that's how he became wealthy. Filthy rich. A no good for nothing rotten scoundrel. Now, this man perhaps had heard John the Baptist preach and had heard that, that, that taxpayers were welcome with Jesus. This man possibly had heard that other taxpayers were welcomed 
in Jesus' presence, he might have heard some teaching that indicated that Jesus was a safe place or a safe person. But he was still a collaborator. He avoided crowds. You could get shanked or stabbed too easily in a crowd. So, so he runs ahead of everybody, sees the tree, climbs up in the tree, and tries to hide. It reminds me of the old joke. You know what time it is when a... Uh, 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 no, okay, I'm not even going to do it because I didn't rehearse it and I'm going to mess it up, so I'm just going to keep on moving. Sometimes it's the spirit that motivates at the spur of the moment. Sometimes it's just somebody confusing you. It might be the, the, uh, uh, the vaccine that's confusing me, so I'm just going to move on. <laughs> He's hiding, but pred- pred- not very well. Jesus sees him. He knows his name. How does he know his name? Well, Jesus wouldn't have been the first one to get to the tree. And the other people probably saw him first and said, Look, at there's that no good for nothing Zacchaeus. They're probably insulting him, calling him all kind of names. And so Jesus gets there and says, Zach, get down. I need to get to your house. And Zacchaeus says, What? You? My house? And the word, I'm going to stay at your house, doesn't mean like for an afternoon tea. It's like to sleep at your house. So Jesus and his entourage turn around and they go back into the city of Jericho. Now remember, all the people there were the ones that had planned Jesus' visit. They had planned this banquet. They had planned where he was going to stay. And I can guarantee you it wasn't at the home of this no-good-for-nothing tax collector. But Jesus says, that's where I'm going to be tonight. So he sits down and eats Zacchaeus' tainted food, sits on Zacchaeus's, sits at his tainted table, sleeps on his tainted bed. Then the frustration of the people towards Zacchaeus turns. And now they're mad at Jesus. How could he make himself impure. It would kind of be like a well-known, nationally-known minister deciding to stay at Bernie Madoff's house in the middle of the very community that he had built thousands and millions of dollars from. What is a minister doing at that scoundrel's house? But that's where Jesus stayed. Now, what's the point of including this story at the end of Jesus' journey? I mean, everything we've seen up to this point is Jesus and the rich, they, they oil and water. They don't mix. Jesus says over and over and over, wealth is not for people of God because it's going to be easier, you remember, easier for an eye to get, a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for what? A rich person to get into heaven. Now we understand why the blind man was healed. That's a no-brainer, right? Jesus had begun his ministry with an announcement that he came to give sight to the blind. The blind was one of the oppressed. We know God, Jesus, and Luke are on the side of the oppressed over and over and over. Uh, Michael Card in his book on Luke says, The gospel of amazement says this about the blind man of Luke. The blind man's stubborn insistence to keep on crying out to Jesus is what made me love this man so much. I believe it's why Jesus also seems to have 
have been delighted by him as well. He sits there in his own personal darkness, crying out for the gift he knows he does not deserve. He cries out for mercy, for chesed. He's the perfect, uh, he get, offers the perfect prayer. It's the simplest request for what is most critical. It makes sense. Jesus helping the oppressed. But Zacchaeus is the oppressor. Why would Jesus help the oppressor? Why would Jesus side with him? Michael Card, in the, just a little bit later, says Zacchaeus is not misunderstood. He is not the victim of circumstance. He has chosen to work for the Romans, to bilk his own people. So successful is he at his job, he has risen in the ranks to become a chief tax collector. The people don't despise him because they're closed-minded and judgmental. They despise him because he has, he's a slimy, good-for-nothing thief. And that kind of person has no business being in the presence of God's Son. At least that's what people would say. And that's what people thought. You know, I don't have it on direct inspiration, but I, I think the reason this story is here is for you and me. For people like you and me. I, I mean, it, Jesus spoke against the wealthy so often that you would get the idea that, man, if you're wealthy, forget about it. You don't have a chance. You might as well just keep on walking and forget about a relationship with God. And yet, if we compare ourselves to the world, we are the top of the top in terms of wealth. I think God, Jesus, and even Luke knew that eventually, the Holy Spirit knew that eventually, Christianity was going to break through the barriers of just the poorest of the poor and eventually was going to get to where rich people, wealthy people, were going to have the opportunity to make a decision to follow Jesus. And one day, many of those that follow Jesus would be rich like you and me. And rather than discouraging our chances and saying, okay, if you don't surrender your pocketbook at the door, you can't come in, I think Jesus wants to give us a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus as a rich person. In two words, be generous. You can be rich as we are, but you can also choose to be generous. Last week we talked about the need for generosity when we're thinking about the rich man and Lazarus. You know, I think there's two kinds of generosity. There's, and, and these are just my terms, but I call one impulsive that's moved by the moment, by the situation. You're up late at night, you see something on TV, or, or you see a post of a friend on Facebook, and you think, man, that just breaks my heart. I want to do something to help. And so then you click the button, or, or you get out your, check, uh, your, your credit card, and you make some sort of uh, a generous donation. Sometimes we'll have a special contribution for a specific need, and, and we're moved when we hear the story of someone in desperate situation. We don't have a clock in the back, and this one says uh, 6 o'clock. And so um, if I don't check this, uh, uh, we're all going to be hurting. <laughs> There's still stuff, right? We're still working through this, so be patient. Um, so so we're, we're motivated by something that we see, and we're moved to generosity. But the other kind of giving is not impulsive. It's what I would call intentional. And this giving is not motivated by any kind of circumstance. It's motivated by an overarching love 
for God and for his people and for his mission. It's the kind of consistent and regular giving that we do when we write a check every week or we send in our e-giving every week, the same amount, the same thing. It's just routine and regular. Now, which one should we do as God's followers today? Both. (laughs) We, We should give regularly, but then we should also give when a circumstance arises. So how do you decide how much to give? You know, you can choose a percentage, 5%, 10%, 20%. You, you can tie your giving to something that, that you spend already, like how much do you spend, do a little budget, and how much do you spend each month on uh, TV, cable, streaming, internet, uh, uh, beauty salon, uh, uh, going to the movies in a pre- and post-pandemic world, a car payment, those things that we do for us. How much do you spend? Don't dare give less in your generous donations than that amount. But then in addition, when there's an emergency, we give. You know, the elders support with your contributions two different aid agencies. One's called, uh, they're both disaster relief affiliated with Churches of Christ. We Every month, two checks go out to those organizations. And whatever need comes up, the money is in the bank there for them. But then, in addition to that, whenever there's a specific need, a hurricane, a flood, uh, 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 the winter storm that that went through Texas, then we often will put aside an additional amount. Impulse giving, given the circumstances, and intentional giving every single week. Where do you see yourself in this story? Blind man? Life is stacked up against you? but you know Jesus is willing to help? Wealthy tax collector, you're on the outside wanting to get in, but don't really know how. Where where you don't want to be is in the crowd. (laughs) The the crowd keeps people from getting to Jesus in both stories. When you think about the crowd, what was it that changed Zacchaeus? What, What led to his conversion and his repentance Did did those who murmured and grumbled that day help Zacchaeus? Did their condemnation, even though it was just, did their condemnation produce a change in his life? Condemnation is never a liberating word. But grace is. Grace offers possibilities that condemnation can never offer. You rotten, no good for nothing sinner is not a therapeutic word. And rarely, if ever, will that motivate someone to change. And Jesus never does that with sinners. Grace is the word that enables people to change. Jesus empowered Zacchaeus to change by giving him grace, acceptance, and affirmation. Jesus helped Zacchaeus live up to what his name really means. Zacchaeus means the righteous one. And through Jesus' grace and through Jesus' love, the person that no one ever thought would change does. Jesus is truly a friend of sinners. If you feel like you're living on the outside today due to whatever circumstance or situation in life, know that Jesus is on your side. If you feel lost today, Jesus is on your side. And we as a church family are going to do everything we can to help you get to Jesus.
God bless your afternoon. We're going to have a song, and then our elder Paul Schwepp will come and lead us in prayer.